Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week, I've been thinking about a question that Ronald Reagan once asked. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? Reagan said that during a debate with Jimmy Carter in 1980. And now it's trotted out every time an incumbent president runs for re-election, which obviously is what's happening right now. It's a relatively new piece of political rhetoric, but it feels timeless. The genius of the question lies in the purity of its appeal to discontent, and how it allows the listener to fill in the blank about what exactly has gone wrong. The candidate asking the question might follow it up with plans for the future, but the effectiveness of that little bit of rhetoric doesn't require it. The question relies on no vision, just an acknowledgement that your leader has let you down. And if that is the case, it's important to recognize it. I suppose that the question can also present a valuable moment of self-reflection. Contemplating our past is essential to understanding who we are, as individuals and as a nation. And that's important too. But there is something else to consider here. Asked if you're doing better now than four years ago, You might consider your salary, your 401k, your health, the stability of your family, or maybe the amount of litter in your neighborhood. Notice the constant here? It's that word, your. This is all about you. And that would probably be fine if everyone affected by the actions of a presidential administration had a say, but they don't. During every election, there are people whose lives are demonstrably worse than they were four years ago, sometimes because of the actions of the American president, but they have no say in the outcome of the election. At various points in our past, this group has included people who don't own property, women, black Americans, and indigenous people. Thankfully, the legal restrictions that kept those Americans from voting have been lifted. But there are still people inside this country who have no say. Children, prisoners, and foreign nationals. To say nothing of the billions of people outside our borders who are impacted by American policy. So if we all keep our focus on our last four years, on our individual struggles, who's going to look out for them? This week, I'm speaking to journalist Jacob Soboroff about one of the groups of people whose answers to that question first posed by Ronald Reagan just doesn't seem to matter. The immigrants who cross the southern border. We talk about the current administration's short-lived policy that resulted in family separation, the bipartisan history that led to such an inhumane policy, and the possibility that it could return. Then, later in the show, I'll bring on Crosscut reporter Lily Fowler to discuss how the decision to release prisoners to prevent the spread of COVID-19 may be putting survivors of domestic abuse at risk. And I've got a couple programming notes here. We've got another Northwest Newsmakers virtual event coming up later this month. On Wednesday, September 16th, Crosscut City reporter and podcast regular David Croman we'll be interviewing Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin about policing in Seattle and the impact of the economic downturn on the city's budget. Then, on September 23rd, we'll be launching a new live event series, 
Inside the Newsroom with host Starla Sampako, where the Crosscut journalists will tell the story behind the story. This first event will focus on the work the team has done to uncover the more personal and hidden impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. And remember, these live events are a place where you can get your questions answered as well. For more information, to submit questions for our guests, and to RSVP to both of these events, go to crosscut.com events. And as always, if you have thoughts on this episode or ideas for future guests, send them to me at talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. I'm on now with Jacob Soberoff. Jacob is a correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC, where he's covered a broad range of issues over the past five years. But in recent years, his reporting has focused on the issues along the U.S.-Mexico border. Jacob is also an author. Earlier this summer, he published Separated, Inside an American Tragedy, a recounting of the Trump administration's policy of separating families at the border a practice that affected at least 5,400 children and has been described as torture by Physicians for Human Rights, a U.S.-based nonprofit organization. In Separated, Jacob delivers a detailed timeline of the administration's remaking of immigration policy, as well as his own firsthand account of immigration enforcement at the border, all collected while on assignment. The story is filled with turning points that affect thousands of people, One of those turning points occurred around the time that Jacob was riding in a Black Hawk helicopter with Customs and Border Protection along the border in April of 2018. He was on assignment with Dateline when the chopper spotted a family on the ground having just crossed the border. Jacob writes that while the children sat cross-legged beneath the tree waiting to be picked up by Border Patrol agents they likely hoped would help them start a new life, On the desk of Kirsten Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security, sat a memo that, should she sign it, would likely result in separation of those kids from their parents. Sometimes, everything looks clear from above. But even with two countries, the river that divides them, and those who on this day moved from one side to the other, all in my field of view, I could not see what was ahead. Jacob, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Mark, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I really enjoyed this book. Um, it, it's a very difficult book to read. Uh, it is a very detailed recounting of something that we all lived through a couple of years ago. And I wanted to start with this particular part of the story because, well, it's an important moment in the history of immigration policy in this country, right? But it's also really interesting to me as a journalist, because it's a place where you admit that what you were seeing, what you were reporting at the time was only half the story. You had really no idea that the memo that would result in systematic family separation existed at that time. But there were red flags, and you're pretty hard on yourself about that in this book. Looking back on your reporting here, why do you think you were caught so unaware? I'm I'm glad, by the way, Mark, that you brought that up, because I do think that in talking about this book, people really want to focus on the salacious details. What did Stephen Miller's now wife say to me over a private dinner? Or what kind of never-before-told documents are in the book? Stuff like that. But for me, what you just cited is exactly what I wanted to write the book. And it's because after seeing this 
all um, with my own eyes and becoming so associated as a reporter with the policy, the truth of the matter is I did not see the family separation policy coming. And there were multiple moments in my reporting, and particularly for the Stateline documentary, where I should have and I could have recognized that this was developing. I was so wrapped up in disproving or proving, depending on what I found, President Trump's sort of characterization of life along the border and was spending so much time with the actual operators on the border, the Border Patrol, that the larger story of what was happening, which was family separations, I think a policy that will be remembered, you know, as one of the most shameful moments in modern American history, I was too close to it to see it happening, I guess. So that's why I wrote the book, right? To be able to zoom out, to say, how do we get to this point? How is what I saw with my own eyes, um, including 1,500 kids living in a Walmart allowed outside two hours a day or kids in the epicenter of the policy at a different detention center a couple hours away, less than an hour away, I should say, under mylar blankets and concrete floors and being supervised by security contractors in a watchtower. How did that all go down without me being able to notice? Is it me on me as a reporter? Is it on us as a society? Or is it some combination of those things? Hmm. So let's talk about that passage that I uh, read earlier. So Nielsen would go on to sign that memo, putting into place family separation as a policy. It was already happening as a practice, but it would be policy. What did you assume would happen to that family that you saw at the border when you were in that helicopter before you knew about family separation? Walk us through what the existing U.S. policy was before this. That's actually a great question. So what I assumed would happen is what I had seen happen many times before, including standing in front of Trump's prototypes in San Diego when I watched a family jump over to declare asylum and present themselves to the Border Patrol. I thought that this family would turn themselves in on purpose to the Border Patrol, say they were here to declare asylum, be processed, booked in the Border Patrol processing station, and most likely um, either go to ICE detention as a family for 20 days and be released into the interior or be released immediately into the interior because things were pretty crowded along the border. And that's sort of how things had gone in the latter half of the Obama administration against their wishes, frankly. But also it's what Donald Trump hated the most about the immigration system. He called it catch and release. And which basically just means you're booked, you're released into the interior to wait for your immigration proceedings to play out. And most of the folks who that applies to are people who come here to seek asylum, right? They're, they're not criminals in any sort of um, violent or nefarious type of way. They've just crossed the border in a place that is deemed illegal. Right. It's not a federal crime. At least it's not a federal crime unless you're charged with it. And that's what family separation changed. They decided to charge with the federal crime of illegal entry into the country, 1325 is the the U.S. code, every family that crossed the border, or as many as they could, um, with with breaking the law. And that necessitated the separation of parents from children as the parents were taken to Department of Justice custody, uh, booked into jails, and the kids were sent to the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And at that time, I had no idea. As the memo sat on her desk, uh, to me, I thought those that family would be dealt with as I looked out the side of the Blackhawk, the same as most other families that I had come into contact with at the southwest border. And little did I know, that, and I, I'd never actually found out, but there's a high likelihood that that family ultimately was separated at some point by the Trump administration based on the time they arrived uh, in the country. You know, I thought it was really interesting 
I think it's in the first few pages of your book, you recount being on the campaign trail with the Trump campaign and you're in, yes. you're in Colorado, right? Colorado Springs. Exactly. Right. And you're, you're watching Stephen Miller, who you didn't know who he was at the time, but he has since been become, I mean, he's the architect of Donald Trump's immigration policy, essentially. And he's given a speech to a bunch of delegates there. And you, I don't know, turn to your producer and say, who the fuck's this guy? And, um, and you're, and then you go on the Maddow show and you guys joke around a little bit about it maybe, and, uh, don't take him seriously and really aren't taking Trump seriously. And there are a couple things I want to touch on with this, um, with this piece. I was, I was pretty surprised at how openly you were in opposition to the Trump campaign, both in kind of what you were writing in the book and also just in the way that you were presenting at the time. Um, and also there was really a, um, really you didn't take something seriously that a lot of Americans were clearly taking seriously. It's and, true. A, and a lot of the things that Stephen Miller was saying w- have resonated with with a a big chunk of Americans. And I guess, how do you look back on covering that campaign? And do you feel like you, like that was a misstep? Yes, I was wrong. It was funny to be there and to see this guy get up there and scream and then, you know, with such passion, and then they got their clock cleaned in that Colorado convention for delegates. They got, I think they got zero votes and Ted Cruz got, you know, a hundred percent of the votes. And mm-hmm. so Rachel and I were kind of joking around about it that night on the air, more me than her in fairness to her. And I think I sort of said like, you know, I was talking in my quiet golfer voice cause I, they were in, still in the ballroom with me behind me. And I said, this is a offer in the words of, you know, sports terminology right. over everything. And, and part of the reason was maybe I, did, I, you're right. I didn't take Stephen Miller that seriously. He got up there and he was screaming about the tragic murder of Kate Steinle, who was killed by an undocumented immigrant, but basically putting the venom he had for that one particular instance onto all immigrants in the United States. And was, I think I, the other thing I said was, you know, this is psycho or something like that. Like the way that this guy mm. is behaving is just nuts. And again, there are probably people who are better suited to say, this guy is really tapping into something and he's tapping into something right now, right here. But the reason I didn't see it was in the beating heart of evangelical Christianity in Colorado Springs, nobody seemed to take to that guy's message. And, you know, that was only several months removed, not even a year from President Trump coming down the escalator calling Mexicans rapists and criminals. And to me, this whole thing about ending catch and release, the way he was going about trying to make the justification for it I thought it was just from another planet, you know? I'm like, this mm. guy, who is going to relate to this guy? And boy, was I wrong. And and Catch and Release, the end of Catch and Release, became, at Stephen Miller's direction, the family separation policy. It became making tens of thousands of people uh, wait in Mexico until their cases were adjudicated. It meant keeping families together in ICE detention. Right now, as COVID is spreading through ICE detention, and not releasing them despite the fact they're able to. It became expelling uh, migrant children from the country immediately and holding them in hotels with little oversight, which is going on right now. I mean, looking back now, if I had a crystal ball when I was there, I would have seen all of these things in that short, crazy speech by Stephen Miller, the same speech I turned over and said, who the fuck is this dude? Hmm. And now it's very clear to me who he is. 
And I wish I would have, instead of focusing on the border wall or drugs coming across or picking little fact-checking holes in his argument that night, I wish I would have looked deeper and really understood what is he talking about when he's saying ending catch and release. Hmm. Well, and I, I think that it, getting back to what we were talking about before, getting caught flat-footed on this, which I think that journalists have been caught flat-footed on a lot of uh, Trump policies. And I think it's because this sort of disbelief that this rhetoric was connected to actual policy continued on in as the administration started, right? Even amongst officials in the earliest days of the administration, I write almost at the very beginning of the book on Valentine's Day 2017, they all piled into the conference room of Kevin McAleen and the head of Customs and Border Protection, the acting head. Uh, and this was just literally weeks after the president was inaugurated. And officials in the room left shell-shocked was the description that, w- that was right. given to me when the idea of family separations on a systematic border-wide basis were brought up because they were they were brought up during the Obama administration and rejected immediately out of hand. And the idea that days into the Trump administration, this idea was back and it was being pushed for aggressively um, was like getting hit in the head with a, with a, with a, you know, like a cooking pot. It was like, oh my God, they're doing this. And from there on out, it was different officials at different levels of government realizing that this was happening and trying to fight back. And that is one thing that in writing the book, in, in terms of the pure substance of it, when, in real time, I kept saying there's no plan. There was no plan to separate. There's no plan to reunite. This is a slow motion, man-made humanitarian disaster. And I think that was largely correct. But where I think I erred there also was that there was a plan. And over the course of all this time, as people did get hit in the head with this information, they started to fight back. But whether it was Jonathan White in HHS or Claire Trickler-McNulty within ICE the list goes on and on. The political people that were appointed by the Trump administration stymied the efforts of career bureaucrats who wanted to keep the best interests of the children at the fore and stop this policy from ever happening. Jim De La Cruz is another one from mm-hmm. the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Um, and so that's another takeaway that I hope people learn when they read it is that there were people fighting this and there, there, there was a plan to reunite, but the Trump administration never allowed the time for it to be put into place. That is by far, in my view, the most compelling part of this book. The thing that I read that I just was not aware of was this conflict that was happening behind the scenes between these career civil servants and the administration and the the political appointees. And there's one there's one uh, you know one story where it is just very illustrative of this conflict. Um, so family separation was just breaking into the national conversation almost about to, there was a New York times story that was going to come out about a list of 700 families that, that had been separated being kept by the, by the office of refugee resettlement. The guy, Jim De La Cruz, who I just mentioned as a matter of fact. Right. So Jim De La Cruz had been keeping this list, uh, and it was not official, right? He had started doing it in the Obama administration because Obama, Obama's administration was doing separation, but in, in more limited terms. And he was keeping this sort of unofficial list. And so the Times got their hands on this list. And then when Scott Lloyd, who was the head of, uh, ORR, of ORR, exactly, he was appointed by the Trump administration. That's right. Right. Got his hands on it. I'm sorry. I'm telling this story and you should be telling this story. No, no, please. This is right. <laughs> but and it's um, complicated and you're getting it, it right, which I appreciate. <laughs> so so when he found out about this, his suggestion 
um, and really a, kind of a, a veiled order was to destroy the list. That's right. And if you destroy the list, the chance of reuniting these families goes way, way down. You know, and there's a certain percentage of these families that are, these are four-year-old and younger kids. And the deputy director who took over after Jonathan White left said, I'll look into it. And then didn't, and then just didn't talk about it anymore. And the, the list continued. And so that is a very, very real situation where if you do not have the pushback, the friction from these you know, bureaucrats, that people's families would not be reunited. And it was just striking to me how just how clear that line was, right? And I think that even Scott Lloyd has come out and, and admitted to this, right? Yeah, he said, I briefly considered it, as it were the words that he used after the book came out. I mean, but he did. He confirmed the reporting in the book. Scott Lloyd's first instinct was to get rid of this list, a critical linkage that would have been used, that was used, to reunite, ultimately, those 700 parents and children. And the fact that that was his instinct, and I guess the, the broader context is the computer systems of ICE and the Border Patrol and CBP, the three agencies that were involved in the separations, didn't talk to each other on the back end so that you could connect parents and children once they were separated. Because right. the system was never designed to systematically separate parents and children. Hmm. It was designed to keep families together or to deal with kids who arrived on their own. Right. And so once this list leaked, it wasn't Lloyd's instinct to call DHS, who he had been talking with, about the fact separations might be happening, or go to Jonathan White, who was no longer there, and talk to him after White had warned about the negative impacts of separations. It was to go to his subordinates and basically, not explicitly, but implicitly, in their mind's eye, order the destruction of the list, which they never did. And were it not for their refusal or inaction— including um, Suolog, De La Cruz, to get rid of that list, who knows what would happen to those children? What we do know is there are still a thousand plus children and parents who haven't been identified from the period before zero tolerance uh, and, and tracked down. We also know that there were 400 parents that were deported without their children before the government was able to reunite them. And so this could have been a disaster on a much greater scale were it not for the resistance within the administration. I think Trump would call these people the deep state. You know, me, mm. I call them heroes for what they did in order to protect the interests of these children in the face of a decision that was being made clearly for political purposes. And I write in there about how Katie Waldman, now Katie Miller, Stephen Miller's wife, was upset with Scott Lloyd about the fact that this list leaked. And when he went back and talked to his subordinates about it, it had been after pressure from the politicals in the administration that was basically saying, why'd you let this get out? Yeah. Well, there, there's a story that you tell about President Trump heading to a disaster site with Kristen Nielsen and Melania and talking about how we should reintroduce family separation, that it, it worked and that we should reintroduce it. And, and essentially, Melania said, no, you're not doing that. But it's clear from that story anyway that uh, it's something that he would like to do. And I wonder if there's a chance that it comes back and that if he is reelected, what's to stop him from really pushing a similar policy? I think it's highly possible. Not much is the answer. What might stop him? The, the couple things, the context on that story is that was April of 2019. They were heading to a tornado recovery mission in Alabama. And there were 20 plus people who had died waiting for the president to show up. 
and consoled him, basically. And what was on his mind as he looked out the window at the devastation was, he said to Kirsten Nielsen, we have to reinstitute that. Speaking of family separation, she said, sir, I'm not sure I can do that on my own. Melania Trump cut in and said, no, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. And Trump said, we'll see, we'll see. And what I didn't know at the time, and actually didn't include in my book because I didn't know this, but has since come out, I think it's a direct result of the book being published because sources came to me to talk to me about this, is that right before Nielsen ultimately signed the memo, there was a huge dispute about family separations in the White House Situation Room. Uh, And in the Situation Room, Stephen Miller led a meeting where there were many cabinet-level officials who were invited to attend, including Nielsen, Alex Azar, the head of HHS, John Bolton, uh, Mike Pompeo, who's still the Secretary of State, uh, Don McGahn, who was the White House counsel, Mark Short, who's the um, vice president's uh, chief of staff at this point. John Kelly was there, the chief of staff. And Stephen Miller said, it's un-American if we don't move forward with family separations. I'm paraphrasing, but basically badgering people to move forward. He wanted to do a policy much bigger than the zero tolerance. Oh, Jeff Sessions, too, invited to attend um, than then the zero tolerance policy. They wanted to separate everybody who came to the border, not just those who were referred for prosecution to DOJ. He forced a show of hands vote about moving forward with family separations in the White House Situation Room, a room normally used to rescue people from disaster, not to create one. And ultimately, Nielsen, who had reservations about the logistics and other problems, not moral, I should point out, said she didn't raise her hand, but everybody else did. She ultimately signed the memo anyways. And the point of telling you this story is that I think Stephen Miller, who pushed for this and pushed for it in a way that would have separated tens of thousands of more children than were ultimately ever separated, is still there. And everyone else has kind of fallen off. Mm. Um, And so do I see a scenario in which Donald Trump is reelected and they try to re-implement family separations? Sure as hell do, um, because we know that he pushed for it on his own after the policy ended and that the top advisors who are still there to this day wanted it to be even worse than it ever was. Hmm. I know you talk about this a little bit in the book, I think, but but maybe not in, in such certain terms. But as a journalist, I know that, you know, the stories that we tell change who we are as journalists and as citizens of this country. And I'm just curious, especially after spending two months talking I'm sure endlessly about this book. Uh, how has this story changed you? Well, I think differently about our country. It's why I called the book Separated Inside an American Tragedy. You know, this was Donald Trump's policy. This is on his hands and those in his administration who made this possible. But what I learned after trying to widen sort of my vantage point after seeing it firsthand was that this wouldn't have been possible without 30 years of failed deterrence-based border policy by Democrats and Republicans, the goal of which was always to harm migrants, to make coming here a choice between making at times a dangerous and deadly journey or saving your life. And so Clinton built the first wave of infrastructure with this prevention through deterrence model that was meant to send people through hostile terrain Bush expanded Border Patrol exponentially when he created DHS. Obama deported more people than anyone in the history of the presidency. And then Trump, and by the way, built the facilities where the kids were held in cages. Um, And even though he didn't separate them, all of that led to the moment where Trump was easily able to do this. And for me, especially working at MSNBC, I think the tendency is for people in our audience to say, this is on Trump. But this is what I learned, to answer your question, is that this is not on Trump alone. This is on Democrats and Republicans for decades, and it's on us as the American people 
who allowed this to happen and who allowed both political parties to get our immigration system to a point where it was so badly broken that doing this, torturing, you use the word that Physicians for Human Rights did, torturing over 5,400 kids in a systematic campaign of government-sanctioned child abuse, in the words of American Academy of Pediatrics, was easy for Donald Trump to do. And so that's why I wrote the book, so that this never happens again. And it took learning about this to get me to a place where I really felt, you know, as strongly as I do today. I felt viscerally shocked and disgusted by what I saw, but probably even more so now, knowing what I know about how we got to this point. Hmm. All right. That's Jacob Soberoff. His book is Separated, Inside an American Tragedy, and you can see his reporting on NBC News and MSNBC. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the show and letting me give you a hard time. Mark, I'm grateful to be here. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Amanda Pyle, and I work on the data and analytics team at Cascade Public Media. As the audience data analyst, I help the journalists in the Crosscut newsroom understand who is reading, watching, and listening to their stories. But I don't just analyze our audience, I'm part of our audience. I stay up to date on the latest Crosscut headlines, I listen to our podcasts, I check out our online videos, and I subscribe to our email newsletters. I also donate. The journalism created by the Crosscut newsroom, including this podcast, is free. But this work does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news source, we count on support from our readers, viewers, and listeners to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com backslash donate right now. Okay, back to the show. I've got Lily Fowler here now. Lily is a staff reporter here at Crosscut, and she recently reported on concerns that decisions to release some prisoners early in Washington state is posing a particular threat to survivors of domestic violence. Lily, before we get to the new details you've uncovered here, can you remind us why Washington state and King County have both released some prisoners this last spring? Sure. The Both the state and King County started releasing prisoners because of concerns over COVID-19 and wanting to maintain proper social distancing between inmates. And so a few months ago, Governor Inslee released about 1,000 prisoners from the Department of of Corrections facilities. Hmm. And and who were these prisoners? What, What were their crimes? So the Department of Corrections was very careful to say that those who had been released were not violent offenders, they were not sexual offenders, and they also said that they released some prisoners that were near their the end of their sentence anyway and would have been released soon. So that's who they said they focused on. I looked at the list of prisoners that they gave me and a lot of them had other charges like burglary. And was it the same kind of prisoners in in King County as well? So King County was a little bit different. They gave me sort of broad categories and the number of prisoners in each category that had been released. And while there was only a small fraction of whom were had been charged with domestic abuse, 
There were some who had been charged with uh, some kind of sex offense or assault. Oh, okay. So I looked at the most recent month, July, and there were some 90 uh, prisoners in King County who fit into either one of those two categories, uh, some kind of sex offense or assault, and had been released uh, to home detention in July. How many more prisoners are we seeing in home detention now than we were, say, last year at this time? For King County, in July of last year, in 2019, there were 111 prisoners in home detention, right? So not so much prisoners who had been released, but at least prisoners who were had been released to home detention and still right. uh, serving that way. And then this summer in July, there was 208, so almost double the amount. And the number of people for the Washington State Department of Corrections is even bigger, 477 in electronic monitoring program in July versus 192 for last year. Wow. So that's, that's a big increase. That's over 100%. So uh, you report that advocates are saying that survivors of domestic abuse are being put at risk by this in- increase in home detentions over incarceration. What exactly are they saying? So they came to me mostly because they were hearing from either individuals or families who were concerned and who were fearful because they knew that their abuser was out in the community somewhere. Hmm. Initially, some advocates came to me and said that there was a family whose child had been abused who was willing to talk, and they were willing to talk because of their, their abuser was out in the community, but they pulled back. Um, they were just, I think, too scared of the situation. You know, the, one of the reasons that they're, they're fearful is because with home detention, they're not always being monitored, and so they, they know this, and so they might get word of a violation the day after it happens, and there's some some lag time there. And so because they're not being immediately notified, they think, well, what if, you know, this happens again and I just don't, I don't know and it's too late. So that's what advocates uh, have been telling me. It was really hard to find somebody who was willing to come forward and tell me their story. Uh, but the uh, King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office gave me a couple cases to look at um, just based on court documents. So you focused on one of those cases. Well, can you tell us about that case and why it's relevant to, to these concerns? I focused on a woman who lives in South King County. I'm leaving out a few details here because um, we kept her name out of the story just out of a concern for her. So she lives in South King County and she uh, has three children. And her husband apparently has both a meth and alcohol problem. And the way she described it in court documents was that his personality would completely change when he was high and he would become abusive. Um, This summer, after he attempted to strangle her twice, she put in for a protection order and he quickly violated that order. He texted her their children. They think he may have even been in the backyard of her home. Hmm. And so that landed him in jail. But after a brief stint in jail, he was let out to home detention and he tampered with the ankle bracelet. And now they don't know where this guy is. Hmm. So as you can imagine, that would put, you know, his wife in a very vulnerable 
um, position, not to mention his children. They don't know if he's still in the community and could show up at any day or if he's fled the state or what. But that was the example that I used, which I think is pretty illustrative of the problem. But to be clear, this wasn't an individual who had been sort of released into home detention because of the pandemic. This was just an example of sort of what can happen when an abuser is on home detention. Is that right? I don't know the judge's reasoning for releasing him to home detention. I mean, I talked to one judge for the story about, you know, what kinds of considerations judges make when releasing inmates, especially now. And she said, you know, they're trying to keep as few people as possible uh, in jail for good reason. Mm -hmm. She also said that she wouldn't release anybody with that kind of history unless they had somewhere else to stay. The court documents that I saw, the only, you know, it just said, you know, him and his lawyer had petitioned for home detention. Okay. But But I don't know what the judge's reasoning was exactly. So it seems that the issue here is one that existed before the pandemic even, and that is that the um, that authorities aren't able to really track people on home detention in real time, that there's a lag. And I, I guess, is this another example of the pandemic sort of um, shedding light on an existing problem, and these advocates are kind of using this opportunity to push an issue that was a concern anyway? From talking to people, it seems that this lack of monitoring uh, inmates after hours and on weekends is not something new, that that's been just the situation for years, hmm. which, you know, came to, to me as a surprise because that seems like a pretty big lapse. but. Right. Apparently, that's just the situation and uh, that's existed for years. But what made advocates ring the alarm again was the fact that they were seeing more and more people released and people with violent histories. So is there a solution in the works? Yeah, so I talked to a senator who was instrumental in in new legislation that just was signed by Inslee this summer, and it's called the Tiffany Hill Act. And it's this new technology that would allow for real-time notification for victims of of domestic abuse. So if there was um, an abuser who got too close, there would be some kind of notification alarm or something on their smartphone. They would know that they they are in danger and they would be on alert and realize, okay, my abuser is close. I need to, I need to leave. Hmm. All right. That's Lily Fowler. You can read this story and more of her reporting at crosscut.com. Lily, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Lily and to Jacob Soberoff for joining me. This episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten, 
And usually this is where I tell you we'll be back next week with another episode, but we won't. We're going to celebrate Labor Day by taking a week off and a deep breath before diving headlong into election season. So we'll see you in two weeks. Until then. <laughs>